everyone, this is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a one-woman book podcast hosted by a university fiction teacher striving to bring some much-needed sunlight to the Stephen King titles Hiding in the Dark. Hello guys and gals and welcome to episode 101! This is part 3 of Wizard and Glass because part 2 really doesn't count, shouldn't count. So we're putting forth a third installment to take a look at what we missed in the second half of 1997's fourth dark tower novel, Wizard and Glass. So we have a little over 300 pages in the second half, and I wanted to highlight some of the strong areas of this novel because now that the dust has settled and my emotions are thankfully in check, there's a lot to celebrate in this story. There really is. There were a lot of interesting moves King made that I appreciated a great deal, and I would like to talk about them soundly logically and objectively what a concept if you are brand new to the show or our wizard and glass coverage or the dark tower episodes in general you know i do outline them a bit differently they are a bit looser in format than our other episodes i like to keep a lot of airflow in these episodes because i really feel like a tourist in the dark tower world so i don't have too many concrete specific ideas to break down only observations only what data I'm gathering by what I'm observing and what I feel is overall working, what I generally enjoy. This is picking up after Wizard and Glass part one, so feel free to refresh with that one and avoid part two because it's just, well, it isn't needed. I barely posted it. I was gonna throw it away. You guys know that whole thing. So unless you're incredibly emotional after finishing Wizard and Glass, it might appeal to you. But if you're a-okay, this is what part two should have been. This is what I intended it to be, that's for darn sure. So for this episode, we're looking at what's strong in the second half of Wizard and Glass what I enjoyed, and questions I may have for the next book, as well as a poll to all you Dark Tower fans out there. Is it recommended that I read Wind Through the Keyhole, or should I save that one for later? What did you guys do? Should I just keep trucking along, or do I have the luxury of deviating to Wind Through the Keyhole? What do you guys feel is the best path? Let me know your thoughts. All right, friends. Let's saddle up with Roland, Cuthbert, and Alen and head back towards Hambry, and I will see you in the next section. gunslingers kim c is a sound mind with all her faculties and i'm totally ready to discuss 
four-ish, maybe five-ish bullet points, we're going to break them down and examine what I really enjoyed in the second half of Wizard and Glass. So the first one I want to kick off, I'm titling The Twisty Plot. Okay, friends, so early in the first half of the novel, the reader is in Hambry and we are just full-blown cowboy world. That is after we leave our cotet somewhere, sometime in Kansas with Captain Trips. So we're in some sort of world that's very reminiscent of the American Southwest of potentially our late 1800s time period there. So the reader's getting to know the citizens of Hambry with great emphasis on Mayor Thorin, who is the gross old guy who has bought and paid for Susan Delgado to be his concubine. Yuck, yuck, yuck. We also have Chancellor Reimer and the Coffin Hunters, who we talked a little bit about last time in our character section in Wizard and Glass Part 1. And so, in any good Western, and as a daughter of the South, Southwest, and I've seen many a John Wayne. These characters are pretty pivotal. That's Johnny Law. Whether they are crooked or not, the law in the Old West is everything. And so, typically, in a Western setting, you need to pay close attention to these guys because, as I mentioned, whether corrupt or not, they will shoot you in a microsecond and we kind of learn a lot about these guys particularly mayor thorin he's not the most honorable also the coffin hunters are a gang of failed gunslingers which i do have a few questions about that in general because i'm a little rusty because we have to jump back to the first novel when Roland is trying to be a gunslinger. He's a bit too young. There's that test where he fights with David the Hawk and all that jazz. But I wonder, is a failed gunslinger someone who just doesn't pass the test? I don't know. But of course, the Coffin Hunters comprise Eldred Jonas, Roy DePape, and Clay Reynolds. More on them in just a little bit. So we've got some folks in power and everything in the town of Hambury seems to be revolving around the New Year's celebration, which is referred to as Reap Day. The reaping or Reap Day is a huge festival, guys. It's a huge harvest of sorts, kind of a combination of end of year. Yeah, basically you're reaping in what you've harvested. It seems pretty revered around the small town, and everyone is very sacred about it. And so, as I'm making my way through the story, especially in the second half, I am under the assumption it's all gonna go down on Reap Day. That is gonna be our climax. But here's the thing, guys, it really isn't. It really isn't. And now that I look back on the novel and the really cool structure King is working with, more on that in a little bit, we really get some deflated balloons plot-wise. And this doesn't mean that the plot was poor in any way, it's just my expectations were totally wrong. I really thought it was there was going to be so much more to it. For example, I thought Mayor Thorin 
the Coffin Hunters, as well as the secondary plot of John Farson, who I still have a lot of questions about, and that side plot of the oil tankers and the potential invasion of Gilead, I was expecting for huge things to go down on Reap Day, like a giant bloodbath of sorts. But several days, maybe, I want to say it's during the same week or maybe a few weeks before my timeline is not great. Uh, now that I, now that I've taken a couple minutes to calm down from my wizard and glass hangover, my details are slightly shoddy. Even though I took notes, it's just one of the things that happens. However, I was convinced in my initial reading, oh man, like it's going to be a bloodbath on Reap Day. And though we do have a very painful sacrifice on Reap Day, you guys know what that is, I was really expecting more from the Coffin Hunters as well as Mayor Thorne and Chancellor Reimer, but those guys get murdered way before Reap Day. And it's kind of lackluster, it's secret, it's in the night, there's no witnesses that they don't take care of. Yeah, and granted Mayor... Thorin and Chancellor Reimer are really surprised by how it all goes down, that plot is used to frame the the boys, Roland, Elen, and Cuthbert, so I understand why it was useful. It definitely didn't go to waste, but stuff like that, you're like, oh wow, I, I mean, that's the law. The law in the West is heavy, and so King disposed of them rather quickly, as well as the Barson's men. There was a little bit of an action sequence, but they ended up in the Thinny, and so the Thinny was used well in that device where it's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that thing. It was there all the time and took care of some folks. So looking at this from the lens of a Western, I was a little, not confused, but sort of surprised. Like, oh, oh, Steve, okay. So what I actually realize reflecting on the second half is that really the climax of the story is back with the Cotet. The memory of Roland that takes 90% of the text, I would say, 85 for sure, I was expecting a huge climax with that. And it's more of a quiet one, I think, because... I think when Roland gets his hands on Merlin's grapefruit and he looks into that pink glass and he sees the tower and everything is different. Everything, guys. Like, everything is different. The climax, I think somebody just softly punches attack into the balloon. Doesn't pop it, but it slowly starts to leak air. And so I think we fade out of the memory rather than an explosive climactic bang. We do have that bang with the very end of the novel, the last section when finally we're back at the campfire with Roland, Susanna, Eddie, Jake, Oi, and they've just heard this incredible tale and then they go to see the wizard. They are in the Emerald City, so to speak. They are in this magnificent green tower, temple, palace, and we get the real climax, which is an appearance by the TikTok man, Hello from the Wastelands. Thought he was dead. He wasn't. We also get the huge reveal that Richard Faraday is Martin Broadcloak. 
is the man in black. More on that. So I like how if you're visualizing the structure of this novel, we've got a really huge opener with Blame the Mono. It's really bombastic. Our quartet is somewhere in Kansas. Captain Trips just is huge. And then we have this very, very long, long, long journey into the past. It is beautiful and colorful. It is written in this very flowery, elaborate prose that I've never really seen King do before. It is all-consuming, soaked in detail. It is it's great. It's just immersive. I felt completely 10,000 miles away from the Katet. I was, oh man, it, it was great. I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the lore he was working with, all of it. And I love a good Western. I just, when you live in this part of the country and you see that sunshine and the big sky and the dry desert all around you, you it's just part of you. It really, one becomes tied to this land, especially if you were born here, which I was. So, uh, I have a huge affinity for that. Loved my time in Hambry and and Magus and the the whole cowboy saturation of it is pretty spectacular. But the climax, guys, is not in Hambry. I thought it would be, especially with all the foreshadowing about reaping, come reap. It's all leading up to Reap Day. On Reap Day is when Mayor Thorin was going to consummate his deal with Susan. It was so sad and gross, but the reader knows about that as the very first sort of couple paragraphs when she's walking to Rhea's place for the sort of quality assurance check. So gross. So... I thought it was all going to go down on Reap Day. I thought Mayor Thorne was going to get taken out. There was going to be a shootout between the Coffin Hunters and then our three Gilead boys and that Susan. I just thought it was going to be like it usually is in Westerns, a big bombastic shootout in the center of town, everybody. That's how it works. There's the face-off. This is why Clint Eastwood is iconic. As Dirty Harry and all the other incarnations and John Wayne, you face off. You you look at each other eye to eye, and then you draw those weapons. And it's epic. Have you guys seen Tombstone? Have you guys seen these classic, iconic cowboy movies? And what you need to watch, of course, is The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, as well as for a few dollars more and a fistful of something, maybe a fistful of dollars. That trilogy is what influenced King to write The Dark Tower, guys. There's such a huge Western influence on The Dark Tower. These are iconic films and these are iconic tropes. These are part of the genre and so I was incredibly surprised that King didn't go that way at all. He was like, nope, we're just gonna have a quiet fade out. Once Roland looks into the glass, he's a different guy, complete 180, and then he finds out about Susan, really sad. The only sort of big climactic thing in Hambry is, of course, when Susan is being led to the Charyu tree. That's when the town is definitely, 
It's a real Nathaniel Hawthorne moment from Scarlet Letter where they're just circling Hester Prynne and it's just, it's, it's old school uncomfortable. Or for a more modern taste, when all of King's Landing surrounded Cersei and was just throwing God knows what at her. So gross, so crazy. That was a great scene. But that was the only sort of big climactic reap day moment. But none of the big players, the Coffin Hunters, all had their shootout outside of town. Mayor Thorin and Chancellor Reimer, dead days before, uh, I was very surprised. He did not take the conventional Western route that I wanted him to. And even though it was so over the top, and I talk about that in my first episode of Dark Tower of the Gunslinger, when he just like mows down everybody in tall, like he murders everyone. Roland shoots like 900 people, guys. I don't think I'm exaggerating. He really does (laughs) shoot the whole town. And I was shocked, but I was kind of expecting, I know he's young Roland here, so I know he wouldn't have that much firepower, but hey, they are gunslingers. They are talented boys. I was expecting a classic shootout and it was all building towards Reap Day. So I was really surprised that our main players are all over the map. They are nowhere near the center of town. They are on the outskirts. And I understand the main reason for that was is somehow we had to get the character of Roland in touch with Merlin's grapefruit. That was why that had to happen. Although I still think that could have been done in a cool shootout in the center of Hambry. That would have been awesome. And I would have liked... Roland and Susan to at least have seen each other in those final moments. That would have been nice, but we are working with King's Playbook here, so there's only so much dreaming I could do and wishing and shoulda, coulda, wouldas. So I was very surprised. And after all was said and done, and I had my cool off period, I appreciated it. I was like, okay, all right. You saved the big climax for the end, back when we're all together with the Cotet and we are in the Emerald Palace, and the huge revelation that Roland committed matricide, that was gnarly, but also to tie everything together. Now the reader and the Cotet know the story, they know why they must follow the path of the beam why they want to follow Roland. I still don't get it. (laughs) I'm still conflicted, everybody, but at least our characters understand why that is. So I was pleasantly surprised and I liked it. I liked the structure of this book so much, guys. I like that we start with the quartet. We have a very dramatic opener, this long trail of rich, rich storytelling in the city of Hambry with these wonderful characters who definitely stood out, who definitely made their mark. And then we conclude with this epic, epic, epic last look at these main players. And it's sort of sealed. I think it's kind of branded in the reader, especially when we have Rhea of the Coos and we've got Martin now Richard Faraday, super duper now, the man in black saying, give up the tower. And I don't know if that's ever been uttered 
to Roland before, I'm sure it has, Tower Junkies, you can bust me on this, but I don't recall yet someone telling Roland thus far, unless I just missed it, I was obviously focusing on other things, telling Roland to give up the tower. So I like that. I like that a lot, and I like that it, the explosive climax is at the very end but it really wasn't in Ambry, and it really wasn't on Reap Day. So I like that. I like that, guys. So the second category, this is just very small, but I still wanted to mention it, and that is hypnotism. Okay, folks, so I don't know if you noticed, but hypnotism, like actually using a physical object to put someone into a trance, was used quite a bit in this novel. It was used a lot. I don't remember if it's popped up in the previous Dark Tower novels. I feel... I can't remember. I mean, I know that there was some jawbone stuff with Roland, which I really liked, but hypnotism! We've got a lot of it, and it's very cool. Multiple occasions. One of the first times we see it is with Roland. He uses it on Suzanne. She is by the lake in the grove. I think this is pre or post coitus. Might be post. (laughs) But she's near the water and she's acting suspicious or sus for my Gen Z. Just very suspicious. And he kind of decides to do a bit of detective work via hypnotism. So he gets this, it looks like it's a necklace. It's a little, I don't know if it's a talisman. It's some kind of necklace and he puts her in a trance and that's how he finds out that she had visited Rhea of the Coos and he gets a greater understanding that something, someone, this Rhea, might be interfering with their lives and influencing her to, I think she almost chops her hair off, do something very uncool. I could have gotten much uglier than that because, of course, Rhea, in fact, was watching through Merlin's grapefruit. She was right there with them in the grove, which is gross and unsettling and creepy and sad because they got no privacy. These young lovers, our Romeo and Juliet, really didn't get, even though King provides the illusion that they got some tender moments together, they weren't private, which is sad because... There was Rhea being gross and witchy-woo with Merlin's grapefruit. We see that first hypnotism with Susan via Roland, and then we see it again with Rhea of the Coos hypnotizing Cordelia, which is Susan's aunt. So she uses it on her in order to... (laughs) Oh gosh, you guys, this part was insane. She hypnotizes Cordelia to slice herself open, specifically in the abdominal area, as Rhea of the Coos and her frequent use of Merlin's grapefruit have depleted her of all life force. It charges the high price to use Merlin's grapefruit, as it should, and (laughs) Rhea quite literally goes face first into her bleeding abdomen area to drink her blood. Uh, More on Rhea in a little bit, because, whoa, King really levels up Rhea in that scene, and I like it, even though it's gross. I like it, because we now know that Rhea is 
very powerful witch. She's gross and unsettling, but also sort of creature-like and powerful. And this power can be regenerated and sustained and death will not find her easily. It's, she's got a lot of power and she's probably got a lot of stock in some dark stuff, some dark deals. And she's a survivor and she just hypnotized Cordelia to slice herself open so she could drink her blood from her abdomen, which that must have been gushing. I actually don't know how Cordelia survived. She doesn't survive much longer. We do see her on Reap Day and she is looking grim. She is pale and gaunt and it's not looking so good. So her her hours left are are short. So I just really liked the moments of hypnotism. I like that that's kind of a thing in this world. It seems pretty common practice, like, oh, you need to get to the bottom of something? Hang on a second, let me whip out <laughs> this little thing on a chain and I'm gonna take care of business. So it's something I noticed that this is a thing, this is how people make it work, and I'm gonna have my eyes on that for future works, because I, like I said, guys, unfortunately, my memory of the Wastelands, other than the big defining climactic plot points or character arcs, I'm a little fuzzy on the details. So I don't know if it has been used previously in the Wastelands and Drawing of the Three. I feel like it might have been especially with Eddie, you know? I feel like Roland's done it before. I do think so, but I like that it was very present in this story. So, hypnotism. I liked it. So now, next we are going to take a look into some characters that I really want to talk about. So we've got three of them that I've kind of already mentioned. I've kind of already got overexcited and freaked out, but Firstly, we just gotta talk about the fact that Martin Broadcloak is Richard Faraday, is Randall Flagg. And I love it because that was my theory, and I know it's probably most likely easy to guess, but it's still very validating to know that my guess was correct. I was chatting with Matt H from Tower Junkies right around New Year's post-Christmas last year, and I I told him, I was like, I is Richard Faraday, like, that's RF, that has to be flag, come on, like, but I didn't know it was gonna be Martin, I just sort of had a hunch, man in black, could it be flag, and it is, and I love that, I just love it, because Randall Flagg, as we know from the stand, King is working with the foundation and cornerstone of dark Christianity, as he has said, and so he is using the Judeo-Christian demon Legion. Legion, of course, makes an appearance in the New Testament. Jesus, who casts him out of a guy and throws him into a herd of pigs, and the pigs jump off a cliff. So Legion he talks to Jesus and he says, because we are many. And so I think King uses Legion because you can put a different face on lots of them. They are a bunch. 
bunch of guys, bunch of entities inside of one. And so for Flag to be the walking dude, but then to also be Richard Faraday to the TikTok man, but then to also be Walter, to also be Martin, this is great. It's just cool. It's cool. And to know that at its root, it's who we know is Randall Flagg that's legion and so when you look at legion as one entity you're kind of like okay cool i like it but i do like this understanding that randall flag gets around and i i like seeing the facets of him i do i think that this is just a germinating thought i think for people a lot of constant readers i've been talking with as well as a lot of fans who I read about, they always mention Pennywise as their guy, right? In terms of the amorphous villain. And I really find myself leaning toward Flag. I do, especially with these various incarnations. I know Pennywise has a lot of incarnations, but he's more creature-like and more of something that's trying to eat and stay alive, which in the end is kind of rudimentary and deflates the fear a little bit, at least for me. But flag, Martin, I'm telling you guys to jump back to the gunslinger for just a moment. I was not having fun with that book, guys. I was not having a good time until the final book when Roland catches up with him. They have palaver with that fire and he's just this hooded figure and does this crazy, amazing tarot card reading and spouts all of this prophetic stuff that is so rich and deep and to know that was flag i'm just all about it so i am celebrating that it is very very cool for me i really enjoy observing how flag behaves in these different incarnations and i like him as the man in black i like him as this martin guy and we don't really get a lot of visualization for Walter, but interesting. So, so good. So, really, really love that that's out now. It's official that he is the man in black. Now, the bigger question is, and I'm assuming I will learn more about this in the next few novels, The Crimson King. So now, I'm a little curious as to, okay, if The Crimson King is above Randall Flagg slash the man in black, then what is that? What is that about? And is that just in this world, sort of mid-world, end-world, wherever the Crimson King holds domain? Is it just... So technically, I'm looking at it in terms of hierarchy, because Randall Flagg, from the stand, seems to have been all-powerful, right? Like really, really up there. The forces of darkness emboldened by all the darkness of this earthly plane. So I'm wondering, is he even with the Crimson King? Right? (laughs) I'm gonna try to not get too confused here. Is the Crimson King and Randall Flagg sort of on the same playing field? Or is it like, for my Lord of the Rings fans out there, is the Crimson King the Sauron, right? He is the ultimate evil. Evil with a capital E. And then he has minions, right? Sauron has a lot of minions. One of them, Sauron and the White, right? 
if that's his official name. Don't kill me, Loader fans. Don't kill me. So my question is hierarchy. I'd like that explained to me just so I'm on the right page, on the right foot. Or does it matter? Does it really matter? Because it's my impression the Crimson King is way higher than the man in black. That's just my assumption. Is that a correct assumption? Don't know. Anyway, let's head over to the next character I really appreciated, and that is Cuthbert. Sweet baby. He was really great, guys. Cuthbert is, of course, Roland's buddy from Gilead, and he really, really shines in the second half because Roland starts to, for lack of a more appropriate phrase, he starts to act a fool. He, I mean, granted, Roland is like stupid in love. He is he's in that stage of love where you are on drugs like you are not operating in your right mind you are obsessed you are insane and so Cuthbert was envious and I like that we kind of observe that but he also was speaking to Roland to snap out of it he he was the focused one and this was especially helpful toward the end when it was all going down. Cuthbert, at first, you're kind of like, relax, Cuthbert. You're just jealous because you don't have a girl to have nighttime fun with. You're just jealous. Cool your jets. But then, especially when Roland went crazy and just looked into Merlin's glass and was a different person, Merlin's grapefruit, the paint glass... Cuthbert really showed his consistency and focus the entire time. He understood, yes, I'm envious, but besides that, we still have a mission to do. We still have to do this right. And he was vocal about it. He was outspoken. Ellen seems like what I would be in this situation, which is very like, let's just go with the flow and let's just... Uh, yeah, I'm, for those of you who do the Enneagram, I'm a nine. So just research that. I, I'm very, very torn, but <laughs> I have a really hard time with being as bold as Cuthbert was in in that moment. But I, at first I was just annoyed by him. I was like, Cuthbert, cool your jets. You're just jealous. Calm down. But then it really, really became a beneficial thing toward the end when everything started to unravel, but Cuthbert had focus and drive, and he was the only sound, logical one at that point, and he kind of just took charge. He really shined bright in that last half, and I don't know what's happened to him. This is another thing that I feel if it... I I know I would have taken notes if it was black and white in front of me, but I think we it's still a mystery as to what happened to Cuthbert and Ellen. I'm concerned. Of course I know it's bad because that seems to be the path we're on per my <laughs> per my episode 2 that just needs to be flushed. I have a feeling that their fates were sad. I need to know. I need to know what happened and I kind of want a little more screen time for Cuthbert because he became incredibly important at the end and I appreciated his 
vocal expression of outrage and trying to get people to listen to what the next right decision was. So I really appreciated that about Cuthbert. He really showed himself to be very essential and very important. And Ellen is is sweet. I, I think I just looked at them all as very talented individuals with a lot of love and devotion for Roland. I don't know if I had the same kind of spotlight of Ellen uh, that I did for Cuthbert, but I really enjoyed the three of them as a trio, guys. I really liked all of them in the same space. Very, very cool. Our next character is uh, Eldred Jonas. I did want to talk about him a little bit. I complained about him a little bit in episode two. I did not like this guy as our villain. I d- <sighs> what an immature punk. Like, that's Eldred Jonas. And I'm quite surprised because he's older. I've seen some of the comic book art surrounding Eldred Jonas. This guy has white hair. This is an older dude. And once more, I'm returning to my question of a failed gunslinger and what exactly that means, other than they just failed the test. The test from the first Dark Tower novel of the gunslinger. So if you're a failed gunslinger, does it mean you're kind of besmirched by society forever? Like, like what kind of shame mark is this that follows you around forever? And it makes sense. If I was a failed gunslinger, I would definitely be as big and bad as I could in the opposite direction if I had to carry around this shame on me the whole time. Here's what I didn't like about Eldred Jonas. I did not care for how he trashed the campsite of the boys, and it doesn't really sound like a traditional campsite. It was a little shack they were living in, and this guy who's probably seen a lot of life and done a lot of things, and I initially was very reverent of the coffin hunters. They seemed like your average hothead pack of villains you see in the saloon in the first couple moments of the western movie. It's We establish the law, we establish the potential bad guys, but I, with cowboy films, I don't know if you lose respect for the villains. They do a lot of heinous things. You might for some, but what Eldred Jonas does to their campsite, he trashes it, he graffitis it, he defiles it, he pisses on their beds and clothes, and he, uh, he defiles their books. It is so childish, guys. It is like what a little punk teenager, or more like a little eight-year-old, an 11-year-old, like a little bratty child does stuff like that. They throw a fit, they make a mess, and here we have this seemingly rough, tough, has grit and life and just a cowboy on the wrong side, behaving like a little petulant teenager. I, it was dead for me. I was like, okay, Eldra Jonas, you are laughably stupid. The Coffin Hunters officially lost a lot of credibility for me as cool. Like, they weren't cool anymore. Even during their cold-blooded murder part, when Clay's, like, stabbing people, Mayor Thorin and Chancellor Reimer, 
I'm like, nope, you guys are associated with this bozo Eldra Jonas, like, come on. So I really question why King made that choice. We're just gonna accept it, of course we are, but I was buying the really rich cowboy world and it's like, wow, you really brought that villain down, down, downgrade. Because he just became a petulant little bratty kid who makes a mess and defiles their campsite. I mean, if he wanted to keep him cool, I just would have lit a match and commit some arson. That's what a cool cowboy would have done. Like, you, well, cool cowboy villain, I should say. Like, you shoot whatever's alive that's around and you set fire to whatever's standing and you ride off, you know, something like that, where it's just mean and fast and furious. That would have been cool. That would have allowed me to retain respect for him. But King takes time and kind of allows Elder Jonas to become this gross little teenager. And I was like, you suck, bro. No, this is stupid. So that is the one area of the book that I was very dissatisfied with, as well as put off by. I was like, okay, the Coffin Hunters are officially dumb. They are dumb. And I don't care about them anymore. And roll them. Let's just roll to the next part of this book. Because anytime I'm just seeing this older, white-haired cowboy who I had initially a lot of curiosity and respect for as a villain, and then for them to just know, guys. So Eldra Jonas is a huge epic fail for me, and also a missed opportunity for a cool villain. I think we could have had some dark, dark villain stuff in action, and it's with the Coffin Hunters, it was like, well, you, you guys are dumb, and I really can't wait for you guys to be shot, of which they all were. That was cool. That was amazing. I was really glad that they were just all shot, but it was like they lost their complexity after that, and I didn't care anything about them. They were irredeemable. Nope. So, uh, yeah, I kind of wish there would have been a little bit more there. However, this is Roland's memory, so this is how it went down for him, I think there was a missed opportunity, especially when you look at some really amazing westerns out there. For example, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. You've got Blue Duck is, you've got some, you have some epically cool villains in these novels that they don't do crap like that, you know? They do other heinous, terrible things. Rape, murder, arson, but mm, not petulant child defiling of a space, you know? So I I question King's decision there because it killed it for me. The Coffin Hunters were laughable at that point. So interesting. My last character, once more, I just gotta say a couple more things because Rhea of the Coos is very interesting, everybody. I really like her character, and she is a king female I will be revisiting soon because she is a multi-layered, multifaceted witch with immense power, but she also has some creature-like stuff about her, and the fact that she was able to regenerate herself by drinking blood, it's a little vampiric. I like my vampires, but... 
I'm very, very interested into how she is connected to the villain side of the story, guys. Seems like there is a connection to Randall Flagg slash the Man in Black, potentially the Crimson King. Still curious about that hierarchy. So I'm, I will be revisiting her again because I like what I see. I like who she is in the town, how she is seemingly just kind of on the outskirts in her little shack with this incredibly powerful mystical object in her possession. She's just got it, using it, but she's regarded as the oddball of the town, but seen as harmless. And that's always interesting because it's sort of like the, the untapped monster. They're just hiding in plain sight and then they snap and there you go. And I think that was Rhea of the Coos. She is frightening in her resilience, how she's able to stay alive. I'm very curious about this self-poisoning she was doing, just the tiny drops of poison she was continuing to give herself daily so she would have an immunity to it. But also, there's something creature there that I'm very curious about because drinking blood would help, but there's something else. There's something else I want to know about. Uh, so Rhea of the Coos, guys, she was cool. She was very, very cool. Gross, unsettling, uncomfortable, and irritating, but I liked her a lot. So those are the four characters who I really, really celebrate in the second half of Wizard and Glass. Alright folks, so the last point I have before we start to wrap up here a little bit is the Wizard of Oz theme. So I've read a few criticisms for Wizard and Glass that say it's a little too heavy-handed, and I, I don't know if I would agree with that. I just know I liked it. I mean, the the heavy-handedness, it is definitely shining a huge light on the film. I mean, the film is absolutely classic. If you haven't seen it, you must. It's just, it's amazing. That and Gone with the Wind are two of my all-time favorites. But I love how how much it channels Wizard of Oz. I mean, we've got Oi acting as Toto when he rips back the curtain and the wizard is the TikTok man. Insert the man in black, also known as Randall Flagg. Like, there's just so much cool stuff there. There's that huge climactic palaver with the two of them. Not necessarily a palaver, but they face off. They face off the way it should have gone down in Hambry. Like, they have a face off. They have a one-on-one with all of them, and the tower is the link between them. It was very cool. I really liked it. But my question is, why the Wizard of Oz, right? If we look at the wonderful aspects of the story. It's about a young girl named Dorothy, which let's break that down a little bit, guys. If we're looking at all the characters inside Wizard of Oz, you've got this young girl from Kansas named Dorothy and her dog Toto. They get sucked into a tornado and uh, are spit out into this alternate world called Oz. There is the Wicked Witch of the West, there's Glenda the Good Witch, we've got the Cowardly Lion, the Scarecrow, and the Tin Man, right? So I started to really meditate on the Wizard of Oz, and the whole journey is so that Dorothy can go home. 
The Wizard of Oz is about going home, and it is following the yellow brick road to get to the Emerald City, because Dorothy has to see the wizard in order to go home, right? And so if we take that and we place it here in this story, yes, we've got the Emerald Palace, we've got Toto as Oi, I was thinking that Jake's probably Dorothy. I don't know, maybe Roland's Dorothy, you know? We can go a couple directions with that. Roland is Dorothy. Yeah, you can really attribute a lot of characters. They can be interchangeable. I think the Cowardly Lion is Eddie because he's kind of comic relief. I'm thinking Susanna is the Scarecrow because she's, I mean, she has a brain, but she's got three brains. She's got three personalities in there. And so that we could sell it and then but, you know, who's the Tin Man? Who needs a heart? I think it could be Roland. I think Roland needs a heart because he needs to remember that people who love him are dying. And I think he does, but I don't know. You can have a lot of fun making comparisons between the characters, but it's all about going home and it's all about appreciating what you have. And at the end of Wizard and Glass, we have our quartet headed towards the tower, the path of the beam. And now they are all aware that they are locked in and they've chosen to be locked in. So is the dark tower the home? I mean, because I don't know if any of them can go home again, right? They were plucked. They were brought through the doors. They are the three that were drawn and Jake's kind of different, but what is home for this quartet, guys? What is home for them? Where is there one at all? And that's a pretty powerful concept that I'm left meditating on at the end of Wizard and Glass now that all the brokenness and emotion has subsided. I am calm now, and now I'm just reflecting on the great parts of this story and how much it meant to me to, to be a part of it. We had our hearts broken. We had the Romeo and Juliet references sort of blow up in our face with the death of Susan. That was incredibly apparent. But with The Wizard of Oz, King carried us. That's how he started the novel with that, and then he ends the novel with The Wizard of Oz. And so they're on the path of the beam. They're on the yellow brick road. The yellow brick road goes ever on. So they're still in Kansas. So they're on the path, heading towards the tower. But where is home you know what is it? and that's a that's a i'm just sort of speechless i guess like looking at what i know about roland now and what i know about the wizard's glass and this seemingly doomed road they're all on the main heart at the story of the wizard of oz is going home so where is home guys i guess that's my question to all of you if you can help me. So that's all I got. Let's kind of recap a little bit. So the areas that I really, really appreciated in the second half is of course the twisty plot. Not what I was expecting. Loved it. Really, really enjoyed that he completely went in the opposite direction of everything I expected. Number two, gotta love the hypnotism. That was very cool. I didn't hate it. It was very fun to observe. Thirdly, I have four characters for you. Martin Broadcloak, 
Richard Faraday, Randall Flagg. Very cool. Also, Cuthbert. What a brave little soldier. I really, really liked him. Also, Rhea of the Coos and Eldred Jonas. What a bozo. <laughs> and then lastly, the Wizard of Oz. But where is home? That's my big question, guys, as we finally close out our thoughts on the Wizard in Glass. What a wonderful, wonderful story, guys. At present, that one has taken the crown for my favorite Dark Tower novel thus far. That was incredible. It was so good. So here's my question for all of you. Do I read Winch Through the Keyhole or do I go to Wolves of the Kawa? A part of me is really leaning on doing the traditional route, just like everybody else had to do as these books were being published, and I need to just go into Wolves of the Kawa. Or <laughs> do you recommend, you guys are the experts, should I take a minute, should I take a back road and read The Wind Through the Keyhole? What do you guys think? I don't know if I will resume my Dark Tower journey this year. We only have four more months. Oh my gosh. Four more months of 2022. I do not think I will have the time. At present, I am about 50 pages into Billy Summers, ladies and gentlemen, and oh my goodness. Let's just say it is striking a very huge nerve. It's good. It's really good. I'm getting a lot of reminiscence regarding 112263 I'm getting the same kind of vibes and those are good vibes so I'm excited I'm working on it so that will come forth in the next few weeks so I believe Wolves of the Cala may kick off 2023 unsure but I'd love to hear from all of you please visit underrated sk to say hello and tell me what you think of the show any questions helpful advice to send my way would be great as well if you haven't visited us on the socials i would love to hear from all of you as well underrated sk pod on twitter and underrated sk podcast one of the two on instagram you'll be able to find me but lastly, if you would be so kind to head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a five-star, that would be magical. It would really, really make our day to know where you're calling from and that you're enjoying the show, and it would help us make some more friends as we head into the Halloween season. So I love and appreciate you all so much. Thank you for joining me on this very bumpy, windy road of the Wizard and Glass exploration bless all of you for your patience and kindness. Wherever you are in the world, please take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.